You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Well, all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. I want you to take your Bibles, and if you would, turn to Acts chapter 23. And uh, thank you, praise team. I tell you what, I just enjoy so much our time of fellowship around the Lord, and it's just a delight to be here. I'm doing something that I, I've seldom ever done, and because of some glitches with our computer and some problems that we had, the message that was titled, For Conscience Sake, uh, part of it did not get recorded. And so today I'm re-addressing the issue and I'm just going to preach the message that I preached last time. I want you to listen, I want you to listen very closely because I believe that there is nothing right now that is more critical in this nation than this idea of freedom of conscience. And I think it's important. Now, let me say this. You and I need to learn to come to the house of God with our notebooks, with pens, and we begin to, we need to be better students of the word. Uh, You know, we work hard. If Reggie's up here or any of us are up here speaking, it's important that you, um, you be studying, you become a student of the word of God. Now, there are critical issues right now in America and in our land today, and the sad tragedy of it is, is that for many of us as believers, we do not know how to enter into much of any discussion when it comes to these issues and more so a biblical understanding of, the, of these issues. So it is important. Now, another thing is a lot of you are in social media. You're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You have a, a venue. You have the ability to take a message like this and to take some of the thoughts, some of the things that you've written down, as well as even just putting a link to our website and going to that particular sermon and sharing that with people because a lot of people are asking questions today about freedom of conscience. Now, when I preached on this a few weeks ago, I told you that there was a prominent psychiatrist. He was a, uh, he's a, a very gifted man, a graduate of Oxford University, a brilliant man in a lot of ways, but I had not seen him in about a year. And, and so he wanted to meet for coffee because he was getting ready to pursue another degree and ask if I would to write a reference. And as we were sitting there, he said, I want to ask you a question. I said, what is it? Now, this man, as far as I know, understand, or what I understand, holds to the teachings of Buddhism. And yet he looked at me and he said, let me ask you this question. He said, why is it that Christianity seems to be more isolated and even more persecuted today? Why is it distinguished from other religions of the world and even in our own country? And I made this statement to him because he was asking, why is Christianity being singled out? And I said, because we are in a spiritual war and it is the only real truth and it represents the greatest threat to our enemy, Satan, and to all mankind. 
So I just, I just told him, I said, you know, to the enemy of mankind, that is Satan, Christianity is the greatest threat to him. We're in a spiritual war, and we see that. You know, we talked about this. When you look at a figure like Tim Tebow, and you see an individual like this, and the attention that seemed to be drawn to him, it was as if the NFL, it's as if the sports ESPN and all of them seem to constantly be honing in on him and his abilities and his talent. He was an unbelievably gifted and talented man. There is a notable disparity between Christianity and all the religions of the world and it's noted today. Billy Graham made this statement. He was asked about Armageddon and the end time, and did he believe that we were living in the last days? And he made this statement, I'll never forget it. He said, he said, I do believe that we are moving toward Armageddon. And he gave this reason. He said, because it seems as if evil is getting worse, and it's polarizing. Good is getting better, and it's polarizing and they're both moving in, in, uh, in some form of confrontation. And if you're a Christian here today, you feel it. So with your Bibles open, Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul talks about this thing of conscience. And in chapter 23, verse 1, Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin, and he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty... To God in all good what? Good conscience to this day in the NIV. Now over in chapter 24, I think it's 24, verse 16, Paul says in, verse, in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, he said, I strive always, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now, Flip on over to Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Because Paul carries this even as he writes this letter to the church there at Rome. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this, Since they show that the requirements... And now he's talking about Gentiles, non-believers, men and women who've never had access to the gospel or to the Bible or to the law of God. He's talking to the Gentile here, the non-Jew. And he says, since they show, the Gentile, the unbeliever, they show that the requirements of the law are written where? On their hearts, their what? Consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now defending them. Now, if you turn on over, well, Romans chapter 9, going over to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, he said, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Now watch this. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now look this way for a moment. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but the differences between the conscience and the Holy Spirit. But notice how Paul uses both of them working in unison together. Now that is critical for you and I to understand. Dog ear that page and hang on to it for a moment. Now look again. Romans chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, and he goes on to say that all of Israel could be saved 
Romans chapter 13, verse 5. Paul continues. He says, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment. Now, note here, Paul is a teacher of the early New Testament church. Paul is, in, he's very clear doctrinally. But watch how often Paul uses this word of conscience. He says there in 13.5, he says, um, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Let's pray together. Again, Lord, we come to you and we pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of men and women. Lord, I pray that you would bind our enemy and give me, dear Lord, the freedom that I need to address a very critical subject in America today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I told you Mississippi has been in the middle of House Bill 15. 23, I, I went back, I read that bill, I read it, then I studied portions of it, and what I understand of House Bill 1523 that seems to have isolated us from even people in our own country is simply this, that it protects someone in the case of same-sex wedding ceremonies, and it protects an individual whose conscience will not allow them to participate in such an event. It protects them not only from that, but from the government's power to force a person, now listen to this, who may hold to deeply held religious beliefs as to participation in such an event or their facility being used for such a function. Now let me say again, this is a sermon that is not about homosexuality. On our website, I think it's July... It is July uh, 2nd, 2015. There is a three-sermon series that deals with the biblical understanding of homosexuality. Two-part sermon, is it okay to stay gay? And then also the sermon, why the church cannot accept homosexuality and why the church must accept the homosexual. In that sermon, in those sermons, you will find a clear biblical understanding of the issue of homosexuality while maintaining a Christ-likeness and a love for the gay community and anything less than that, even as your pastor, I wouldn't tolerate it. But this bill, House Bill 1523, protects an individual whose conscience will not allow them to participate, for example, in a same-sex marriage ceremony or medical personnel who might be called upon to assist in some kind of surgical procedure to change one's sexual biological makeup. In other words, an example would be a Christian doctor who would be approached by Bruce Jenner as he was working through his uh, sex change could refuse their services based on the fact of their conscience. And let me say, and I said it a couple of weeks ago, this is not a joke, this is a troubled man. The bill, also in the case of recusal, and I, I don't know whether I'm saying that correctly, Molly is our, in law school, I hope exams are going well, I've been praying for you, but... Molly is finishing up her first year in law school. But what I understand about the case of recusal is one who due to conscience sake cannot perform a task will give notice. 
And another person that we're talking about in governmental agencies, another person's services will immediately be put in place in order to ensure that that individual's freedom is also being, uh, being recognized by our government as well. In the case of government assist assistance, for example, a marriage license, an alternate person would be supplied quickly if the individual who is there has a problem with doing the process. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Now, the deeper issue here, and there's always a deeper issue in the life of a Christian, is this matter of conscience. Because we keep hearing that word thrown around, but first of all, what is conscience? Second, what does the Bible teach us, and how are we to approach the matter of conscience as a follower of Jesus Christ? And thirdly, are there warnings about conscience? First of all, what is conscience? And I use this illustration, but I think it's good. John MacArthur tells the story of a tribe somewhere in a very remote pagan area. He says, when they're trying to find out the truth, they will take a knife and they'll put it in the fire and they'll get it red hot. And then they'll take the individual that they're trying to figure out whether the individual is saying or speaking the truth or not. He'll stick out his tongue and they will stick the knife, this hot knife, to the tongue. If it sears the tongue, then it means they have a dry tongue, dry mouth, and that means they're lying. If it doesn't sear the tongue, then that means that their mouth is moistened and thereby they must be telling the truth. Now, I told you we're doing some giving campaigns and we'll try to incorporate this into our financial committee's ability to get you to know I'm teasing. But the question is, how do you define conscience? What is the conscience? Now, Webster's Dictionary says this. It refers to conscience and, and, and individuals, you and I need to get our spiritual antennas up really high because the Christian community and the church is losing battle after battle after battle after battle because we in no way understand the issues and what the Bible has to say about them. Now, for instance... The Webster's Dictionary says that defines conscience as a moral sense, a knowledge within, a sense of right and wrong with a compulsion to do what is right, a moral judgment that opposes the violation of a previously recognized ethical principle and leads to feelings of guilt if one violates such a principle. Note again, listen to that. A compulsion to do what is right inside of us and the conviction when one disobeys said principle. This was the argument used by C.S. Lewis in one of the great apologetics mere Christianity. And last time I didn't bring it, this time I did bring it. Let me read an excerpt out of this, one of the greatest books that has ever been written. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things that people say. He say, they say, they say things like this. Now, he's British, and this is back probably in the 50s and 60s, but he's a Brit. He said, people say things like this. How do you like it if, so, if, in, if someone did the same thing to you? 
That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He hasn't done you any harm. Why should you shove him first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of my orange. Come on, you promised. Now he goes on to say, people say things like that. Everyday educated people as well as uneducated and even children speak like this. He said, now what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He, now listen to this, he is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to be aware of. Does that make sense? Basically what C.S. Lewis was appealing to and what he was saying, it is a tool in the area of apologetics defending the belief in God is that every man, woman, boy, and girl has a moral compass that somehow has been put there by their creator God. Now that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Look at Romans chapter 2 again. Turn back. Turn back to Romans chapter 2. I want you to see this because this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, Paul says this. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law... Now remember, a Gentile is somebody who doesn't have an Old Testament. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have any belief in the... in the Judeo-Christian ethic, they, they have no belief at all. They are basically non-religious. Paul said, listen, indeed, when a Gentile, non-believer, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law to themselves, for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written where? Where are they written? Underline that. You remember what we said? That moral sense, that inward voice within man. They are written, the law is written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing or defending their behavior, defending them. Wayne Grudem in his book Systematic Theology said this, in an introduction to biblical doctrine, he said, Paul shows that even unbelievers who have no written record of God's law still have in their conscience some understanding of God's moral demands. He goes on to say, he said, speaking of a long list of sins, envy, murder, strife, deceit, Paul says of wicked people who practice them, listen to this, though they know God's law, because it is written in their heart, that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve others who practice them as well. He continues, the the consciousness of of unbelievers bears witness to God's moral standard, but at times this evidence of God's law on the hearts of unbelievers is distorted or suppressed. In other words, what God's Word says, people a lot of times will say, well, what about people who have never heard, who've never had an opportunity, they've never had the Bible, they've never had this, never had that. Paul says they're still guilty because their moral lawgiver, God, their creator, has stamped in their very heart a conscience. So we call it, in theological terms, we call it general revelation. 
In other words, it doesn't matter if you go to the deepest, darkest parts of Africa. There is an understanding and a grasping of what is right and what is wrong. General revelation deals with the existence and the character and the moral laws of God. Now look this way. In the area, you may say, well, Brother Jeff, where are you going with this? Well, I've traveled. I've lived in a lot of places. And I've been in Africa and in different countries, in Europe. And let me say this, the more primitive countries that I go into, seldom, I don't know of one homosexual relationship that I ever saw anywhere on the continent of Africa. You see, the moral law that's in man, the inward sense of what is right and what is wrong, his definition and understanding of sin that has been stamped into him by his creator. When you don't allow society and cultural trends to somehow affect it, it naturally goes in a direction that is monogamous and one man, one woman for life. C.S. Lewis, in The Abolition of Man, listen to this. He said, if anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teachings of the ancient Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Hindus, the Chinese, the Greeks, and the Romans, he says, what will strike them is the commonality, how very much alike they are to each other. And he basically was once again saying, because we have a moral lawgiver who has given us a conscience of what is right and what is wrong. who we are. One of the greatest arguments for the existence of our Creator God is our conscience. This moral sense within us, even for those who don't have the Bible, have a moral law within them and by that moral law they're judged. No man can claim ignorance when they stand before God. Again, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, listen to what Paul says. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience bears witness. Now the question then becomes, is this, is the conscience the Holy Spirit? Look this way. No. The Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. But it would be safe to say that the conscience is the precursor, the early warning system about sin and the consequences of sin. It is the moral compass within a lost man or a lost woman that guides them to their need of Jesus Christ. And any time you dictate or demand or cause somebody to go against their conscience, you are interfering with the very framework of how God created humanity from the very beginning. Let me tell you this. If somebody makes one of my kids do something that is against their conscience, they don't have a problem with my child. They have a problem with me. America is habitually positioning itself against the very one that our forefathers and the founders of this nation we're seeking to establish the framework of this nation on. Some of you look like you're not paying a bit of attention. What I'm saying to you is absolutely critical. 
This is the ability, if you and I don't understand what is at stake, this is the equivalent, Brian, one day somebody in a position of authority saying to Elam, I don't care what your conscience says, and I don't care what you feel in your heart you need to do. The truth of the matter is you're going to do this or you will be fired and you will be imprisoned. And we're not far from that. Once government and once people begin to use power and cultural trends to position against the conscience of a human being, we have crossed the line and we are in a dangerous place. It's critical. So here you have the conscience. Now, what about the warnings of the conscience, because the conscience, as we see in the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit and the conscience, listen, are both here. The Holy Spirit and the conscience are working side by side in the life of your pastor. They're, they're tag-teaming against sin. It's not that the Holy Spirit removes that inner sense of right and wrong, that conscience but the Holy Spirit now begins to, listen, look this way. It heightens it up. It's now more sensitive. I love those people. I'm one of them. If I'm talking to you and I say something and I stretch the truth a little bit, I'll stop and say, wait a minute, that's not altogether true. Let me correct that. Do you know what that is? That is the Holy Spirit tag-teaming, heightened awareness of the conscience that says no matter how small that was, that was a lie, and you exaggerate it and correct it. So the Holy Spirit and the conscience are side by side. Now why is that important? Let's go back to Courtney and Brian back there, one of our deacons. Elam is a year old. If government has the ability and the power to force Elam to go against his conscience, then government is one step away from causing Elam to go against the Holy Spirit. And in that framework, the issue now becomes between whatever that entity is and that government is and Elam's creator, his God, his Savior. Os Guinness, who's written over 30 books, and I quote him toward the end of this message, said that he was speaking before Congress or speaking before some legislative body, but I believe he lives in Washington, D.C. He was speaking to Congress. He had brought up the dangerous place that America is at today, and he was warning those that lead this government. At a certain point, he made pretty much a statement, generalized statement, that as far, he wrote a book called The Suicide of Freedom, and he's, he's warning America the trail that we, the track that we're on. And he made this statement. He, he basically said 20 years or 50 years or a generation or two away. And afterwards, he said a prominent person in our legislature, in our, in our national legislature, came up to him afterwards and said, I agree with everything but one thing you said. And Os Guinness said, what is that? He said... He said, Os, if things do not change, he said, I give America five years before we experience some kind of catastrophic event, whether it be a social uprising, something is about to break in America, and you listen closely, parent, and if you're not, go down and apologize. Go, go, go on and get your kids and apologize to them on the way home. 
But the reality is America is positioning itself in a direct conflict with God. Anytime you abuse authority, there is a cost. So what is the warnings concerning the conscience? If we all have a conscience, if we have a moral compass, if there's an inside of us, an inward knowledge of what is right and what is wrong and a compulsion within us to do what is right, and right seems to be, listen to this, right seems to be generally understood not only among us in this room, but across the country, across the world, and all the way back through history, if we have an understanding of what is right and what is wrong, then what warnings are there? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I used the example of a car thief. You think about somebody who steals a car. A car thief may not agree until his car gets stolen. Right? Don't you love to see a car thief lose his car? Because when the car thief's car is stolen, even if it's a stolen vehicle... He may be out there throwing a fit, ranting and raving, saying this is not right because his reaction is exactly the same as yours. That's not fair. That's not right. Well, what is right? What is he appealing to? I wrote this down, a common indwelling moral belief that taking someone else's property is not right. And that person has suppressed his own conscience by the fact that, well, I can't get a job social injustice, my mama raised me, he suppressed his conscience until he has his car stolen, then he appeals to the very conscience that has been screaming from the depth of his soul, this is not right. It's not right. But what, what warnings are there when it comes to the conscience? Paul said it this way, in 1 Timothy, you can turn over there, 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Watch what Paul says here. Because Paul reminds us of, of our conscience and he reminds us of the, some things that we can do and he warns us. He warns us. And he's writing to Timothy, his young preacher boy. And he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, the Spirit clearly says that in when? When is it? When? Later times. He's talking about as we move toward the end of the age, the consummation of the age, the coming of Christ. Paul said, listen, as we move toward those latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose what? Whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. That picture there is the same picture, and I've used it several times. A friend of mine whose son was riding up through the hills in Yazoo County, and uh, he lost control of his vehicle. The vehicle flipped. Gas was everywhere. He was by himself. And that car exploded into flames, and it melted that asphalt. And when he climbed out of that vehicle, he had molten asphalt stuck to his hands. I remember going to the burn center when his family called me and hearing him screaming through that entire building as they were trying to get that asphalt and to clean those wounds. Afterwards, I looked at him one day. He wore gloves. And I said, I said, D, I said, 
I said, why do you wear gloves? He said, because when I crawled out onto that asphalt, I had third degree burns and my skin no longer has nerve endings. I cannot feel, so I have to wear these gloves because I no longer feel. Leprosy is the result not of disease, but the eating away of flesh to the point that a leper begins to wear out their extremities because they no longer feel. How do you sear a conscience? How do you sear a conscience? By repeated disobedience. Habitual willful rebellion. We beat it down. We suppress it. We reason it away. We explain it as a social misunderstanding. And now, all of a sudden, we've got the, we've got the truth. We begin to blame God. We unite in a communal effort to redefine a moral deviance. Because now, and we can use our power to assault the conscience of other people. And over time, the consciousness the conscience of a man or a woman and its effectiveness is compromised. Why? Because it has been seared, it is deadened, it's hardened, it's callous, and it's cold. And even to the believer, this can happen. You watch enough movies with GD this and GD that. You watch enough movies and you may say, well, you know, it had a little nudity in it. But let me tell you, it had a good line. It had a good storyline. My friend, I love what Roger said. That's the equivalent of wading through sewage to pick a flower. Your enemy, even as a believer, is in essence trying to desensitize your conscience because if your conscience is desensitized, then it makes the Holy Spirit's work that much more difficult. Because that tag team now is suffering in the depth of the soul. And so you sear a conscience. Searing of one's conscience is not an individual act. couple of things here. When people begin to sear their conscience, when they violate their conscience, they may do it for a period of time as an individual act. They'll stay in the closet. But there comes that point when you and I get called up in disobedience that that individual act begins to incorporate our friends, those people we know, and before long sin has to have company. You sear the conscience of a people, and for that matter, you can sear the conscience of an entire nation. Nazism. World War II was birthed out of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf was the systematic searing of the German conscience. And you may say, how could people get to that point? Well, you remember I told you a couple of weeks ago. They would kill, they killed over six million Jews. They belled their hair like hay. They ripped their hide from children this age and children down in the nursery. They ripped their hide from these kids and tanned it. They dried it out, hide, and the highest compliment to a Nazi officer was this, that he had a wallet that was made out of the hide of a Jew. And you say, how did it happen? Because Adolf Hitler and Mein Kampf and every teaching of Nazism began to sear the conscience not of an individual, not of Adolf Hitler, but an entire race of people. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read his biography. Eric Metaxas wrote a book. It was like 600 and some pages. But it was a fascinating look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer who warned the, earth, the church in Jerusalem, as, I mean in uh, Germany, as to the cowardice of the church and her leaders as contributing to the Holocaust. You're living in that time. Let me tell you something. It's not the LGBT community that's being bullied today. It's a Christian community. We've been bullied. We've been bullied out of government. We've been bullied out of the schools. We've been bullied out of the medical industry. We've been bullied everywhere. It's not the LGBT that's being bullied, but Christianity, not from the government to the NFL to the NBA. Hollywood today is a bully. Starbucks is a bully. And a host of other companies who systematically are doing businesses with countries that my friend listen. When they find anyone out of the gay community, they kill them. I was listening to an African-American this week warning the African-American community as to the critical uh, direction of this country. He made this statement. He used PayPal. He said, PayPal... He said, ask where their headquarters is in the world. He said, Singapore, Malaysia. He said, let me tell you this much. Research in Singapore and Malaysia what they do with people out of the gay community. And he said what I said to corporate America, to the entertainment industry, and the, and the NFL, the NBA, and anybody else involved in that. You bunch of hypocrites. PayPal's hypocrites. Hollywood is glamorized by the very clothing that is produced in children, child sweatshops. And my friends question why is Christianity singled out and so ruthlessly attacked? Because it is the truth. And let me say here, I'm not, some of you I'm not talking to. I'm not talking to this American, westernized, no cost, in name only church member. I'm talking to the followers of Jesus Christ and I'm warning you. The conscience of America is being seared. It's been seared on every moral issue. Pornography, which is rampant, a billion dollar industry, which has more revenue than the NBA, NFL, NHL, and uh, Major League Baseball, all of them combined. That's how well pornography is doing in America today. Drugs, alcohol, sex, corruption, a variety of moral deviances. The alcohol industry, the porn industry, and our children are paying the price. Fifty years ago, black or white, if a man walked into a woman's restroom, I can tell you black or white what the reaction would have been. How many crimes are carried out by one person? Few. Because deviant behavior, actions which violate our conscience... Individually, in the beginning, in time, we have to build a following around us. There's nobody that loves the homosexual gay community more than I do. I do love them. I remember one time talking to a couple of people who were in that lifestyle very heavily. And I looked at them at one point and I said, let me ask you a question. And I said, for clarification, because I'm just not sure how to handle this. I said, are you wanting me 
my wife, my children, my grandchildren to accept this lifestyle. This individual is not a member of this church. Nobody even knows. She said, oh, no, no. She said, we don't want you to accept it. We want you to be like us. And I thought to myself, now I understand what I'm battling. Abortion and homosexuality are the two issues in America today that if they were fully embraced by every one of you, we would cease to exist in humanity. If we killed our unborn and we were drawn to same-sex marriage relationships, then in time we would not be able to propagate, which was the first command of God when we left the garden. Replenish. But we have an enemy and he loves to kill, steal, and destroy. And I made this statement. I, had to, I went back and apologized, Eric, to John, and I do to Eric because I love these men and they make a great sacrifice. They put up with so much up there. Wow. You want to be a sound man in a transitional changing church with loud music, you just go up there, buddy. You'll get beat up a lot. But I went on to make this statement, and I wrote this down. I said, I want our deacons and lay leadership to listen. I know few preachers today who are dealing more clearly and biblically with the issues that are pounding at the church. Many pastors either lack the education or the experience to adequately walk their congregation through the issues, that they're, and they're looking for help. I had a man ask me two or three weeks ago about the navigability of our website and how critical it was. I met with a pastor Thursday morning and we were talking about these issues. I had other people that have corresponded and said, how do we enter into a biblically sound, kind, Christ-like discussion about this matter? When I was working on my doctorate, I'll never forget what the faculty at Reform said. One of the professors in our very first class said this. He said, there are many pastors and church leaders who will never have the opportunity to achieve this level of study and you have a responsibility to them as to research and integrity because you may one day be quoted as a reliable source to one who is looking for answers and being bullied by a congregation or the community itself. Wow. Here's the principle, and if it's not on your Facebook, unfriend me. Please unfriend me. You're not going to hurt my feelings, but if you never mention anything spiritual, and you never talk about sermons, and you never talk about what's going on spiritually in your life, and what God is revealing, and you don't care anything about please remove me, unfriend me, and I won't be bothered at all. And I don't want to play no games that you send those requests to either. You've got time to play some of these little silly, little stupid games, go right ahead. I don't have time for that, so don't even approach me and ask me, will you play? A woman now who's no longer here was always saying, well, you play this, I don't know, Candy Crunch or whatever. I don't know what these games are people are playing. But listen to this principle, because this is worth putting on, your web, on the Twitter or Facebook. To force anyone, to force anyone to do something against their conscience to force anyone to do something against their conscience, may speak more about the one who is forcing the issue 
rather than the one who holds to the belief. Now let me say that again. Because some of you are not writing and it doesn't matter. To force anyone to do something against their conscience may speak more about the one who is forcing the issue rather than the one who holds to the belief. And I use the example of working for a Mormon. I worked for a Mormon. A Mormon was my boss. He didn't drink caffeine. He wouldn't drink a Coke, wouldn't drink coffee, anything with caffeine. And I was a young, strapping young man in college, and I was working the sports uh, department of this particular department store, but I'd go up there and I'd hound and tease and joke. I'd take him a cold Coke and say, man, you sure you don't want a Coke? Hey, let me get you a cup of coffee. I made a joke out of it till one day I saw this man and I realized how much this principle, his conscience, how much it was stinging him to consider the thought of drinking something with caffeine. He had told me so many times he couldn't do it. Finally, there came that point that I began to understand that it wasn't he that had poor behavior, it was me. The LGBT must recognize this. If they claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they have to reevaluate their behavior when it comes to the church. Satan will sear the conscience of a community. He'll acclimate society to sin, to immoral behavior. He'll do as he did in the garden. He'll say, is it really sin? Did God say? Surely he didn't mean that. You see, that is critical. Your conscience can be seared and given time. Your conscience can be silenced. The conscience seared in time is silenced. We're seeing crimes and criminals today to whom we ask, do they even have a conscience? How many times do you hear people say that? You'll see some crime take place and you'll think to yourself, you know, does that person even have a conscience? And the answer to that is yes. They have a conscience. But they have seared that conscience to the degree that they've silenced it. Criminal behavior is glamorized. Car thieves, we now have video games that glamorize the lifestyle of a car thief. And you say, well, how did it happen? Because society began to desensitize itself to the point that its conscience was seared and then it was silenced. I'm going to say this. Many pastors have given up in the end. They've silenced the pulpit on moral issues that, that rip away at the fabric of our land. They are discouraged and defeated. Nine out of ten pastors do not make it to retirement. They're leaving the ministry at record numbers. They are discouraged, defeated. They feel an inch tall in a climate of a church that today is judged by its numbers. Jesus took a mega church in John 6 and turned it into 12 and then asked them, would they leave? Ministries today are judged by TV, cash flow, facilities, and ever-increasing membership, not Jesus. Some churches are run by lawyers, doctors, and big money and systematically running off men of God. Paul died in prison preaching the gospel and for nearly every person we need personality in the scripture, they died tragic martyrs' deaths. And we may not be far away from that. So you can sear, you can silence, and in time, you can strong arm the conscience of other people. What do you mean? 
Because sooner or later, once society's conscience is seared, then it begins to persecute those consciences who are not. It seeks to silence them as well. Osgen is English author, social critic, former correspondent of the BBC in, it, in Atlanta, was asked in, a, in, a, in a, a major event by a student from Georgia Tech, as our culture feels the tension between desire for freedom and a desire for security, listen to this student's question. In a packed auditorium in Atlanta, how can we best articulate the need for the freedom of conscience? And let me say that, and the freedom of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and the government can force you to go against your conscience, the government can force you to go against the Holy Spirit. And as I said before, in raising my kids, if an authority figure tried to overrule my leadership, my counsel, and my teachings, and my moral principles, and what I held to be deemed as my conscience, which is also the conscience of my children, then that authority figure was in direct conflict now with me. America is positioning itself for a major confrontation with God. And if you don't believe it, you can look at the weather, you look at our economy, and you look at every person that's warning us today. I went to all 50 capitals. I spent three days in Washington, D.C. I was run off twice from the Supreme Court when I tried to kneel on the curb at the sidewalk. Security twice said, you can't do that, move away. Former officer and a chaplain in the military. You can't pray here, get back. Three days I walked around Washington, D.C. I went to all 50 capitals. When I got to Juneau, Alaska, I'll never forget the woman who played the piano and was the wife of the, of the pastor. Afterwards, they took me out to eat. We were sitting there eating. It was one of those days in Alaska when the clouds are just almost suffocating you. It was in her, and her husband, uh, the pastor of that church, had cancer. And I'll never forget, she looked at me. She got a inquisitive look in her face and she said, you're the fourth one. I said, what? She said, you're the fourth one that's been led to go to all 50 capitals in D.C. and to walk around and pray. And now Franklin Graham. Let me tell you why. Because we are at a critical moment in America. So this student said, as our culture feels the tension between the desire for freedom and the desire for security, how can we best articulate the need for the freedom of conscience? Listen to Osagenis' answer and put your spiritual antennas way up because this man is a godly man. He said that currently is the burning issue. If you just think in 20 years, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed by both the Congress, the Senate, and the legislature with only three people in the Senate and the House disagreeing. Hundreds were in favor and there were only three dissenters. It had universal approval. Democrat introduced it and a Democratic president signed it into law. And now he said there is a total fracturing of the understanding of religious freedom and the freedom of conscience. Why? And he said, because of the LGBT revolution and the way they are playing 
what he termed a zero-sum game so that anything that contradicts, listen to this, that contradicts their freedom should be overruled. The tragedy of that is these are former liberals who are now highly illiberal because if one human right, listen closely, parent, if one human right, the new fashionable human right overrides the accepted traditional understanding of a deeper human right, then conscience and its religious freedom are lost. He said we find ourselves then in what he termed a matter of power and a kind of Nietzschean. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher who gave us such things as God is dead movement and was a part of the founding of fascism and Nazism. He said we find ourselves in a Nietzschean power game that is destructive of all human rights. This is just an example of how our secularist friends, and a secularist is an individual who holds to the idea that political and social philosophies reject all forms of religious faith and worship. It is the view that public education and other matters of civil policy should be conducted without the interference of anything religious. He said the secular humanist are secularist friends who can no longer give a foundation for human dignity and now increasingly they can't give a foundation for freedom. And many of their ways of stressing it are undermining freedom so that it's not a matter of defending ourselves, but we want to defend the rights of all human beings. And if we go back to the history of human freedom, he said the first mention of it was by a Christian, Tertullian, who talked about the freedom of worship. And he went on to bring up the idea that Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, one of our forefathers, believed in the freedom of conscience, and that was the very reason people came here. But he went on to say this, we face persecution. Listen to this, parent. We face persecution and even death, such as some of our brothers and sisters in the Islamic State. Starbucks, Nissan, NFL, Hollywood. If a group out of the LGBT were taken to the shore of one of our beaches and systematically beheaded, and it was a video publicly to be seen by the general populace, there would be an outcry around the nation and around the world. You bunch of hypocrites in Washington, Hollywood, NBA, NFL, all of you. Shame on you. Christian men were lined up on a beach. And if you don't believe me, you can go and look at it. And systematically beheaded by Islamic extremists for their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they refuse to bow their conscience. The freedom of conscience is not a freedom any longer in America. Students said, what do we do? Osgen has said, we understand the issue, we be a persuader, and we pray. To the African American in 2012, 93% of exit polls, African-American voted in favor of President Obama. President Obama, prior to running, had made it very clear 
that he not only was in favor of a very liberal view of abortion, but also a very liberal view of same-sex marriage. You say, well, Brother Jeff, are you picking on us? No, I'm just saying this. You may have to do what Martin Luther King Jr. did. You may have to put pressure on the platform of the Democratic Party who voted God out of the party to a round of applause. Martin Luther King Jr., and it's, it's the tragedy of the African-American community, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, this brilliant man, basically said to the Republican Party, which African-American had voted up till the early 1960s, they were Republican almost 100%. Martin Luther King Jr. said, as well as men like him, to the Republican Party, you change your platform or we leave it. I believe that the only hope for America is a spiritual awakening, a revival in the African-American community. And that's why I'm here. To everyone in this room, we are entering the most difficult time, perhaps, in the history of Christianity. Persecution is on the horizon. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 24. He said, they will deliver you up. Persecution is on the horizon and one must understand the issues and know what you believe and beyond that, you and I must be certain that we are in fact a follower of Jesus Christ because it is in this environment that he said, I'm coming. Do you know for certain that you're a Christian, that you've given your life to Christ, that if you died that you'd spend eternity in heaven? Hey, listen. You say, well, Brother Jeff, I don't believe any of it. You just go right ahead. But on the way out of here, don't you dare get in your vehicle that you don't first go down into the preschool department and the nursery and apologize to them. Because the people in this room are threatening the future of that generation that is in her womb and is downstairs. enough well what do I do you repent of your sin whatever the sin is you don't redefine it you don't rally up the forces to make whatever sin you've come comfortable with and seared your conscience into a moral deviance it's just normal you repent it doesn't matter thief, liar, gluttony, porn gossip homosexuality you ask for forgiveness. Lord, I repent of my sin and I come to you right now. And I ask you to forgive me. And you ask him to come into your heart. You invite him into your heart. You say, Lord Jesus, I want your indwelling Holy Spirit to come in because the conscience needs the assistance and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to awaken it back up to where it needs to be. That's how drunks become sober men. That's how drug addicts walk away from crack and crystal meth. That's how men and women who slept around and have a child, this relationship, that one, are living in adultery. That's how they let go of that lifestyle and they say no more. Because now the conscience is on high alert. Because it's been tapped into the power of the Holy Spirit the moral compass giver 
And then you follow in believer's baptism unapologetically. And then you begin to serve him until he comes. Let's stand and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. And Lord, I have done my best. And next Sunday, dear Lord, I will share with this congregation what I believe is a biblically based argument that for any person in the LGBT movement would have to say, you're right. Not in an unchristlike way, not in a militant way, not in a hateful way, but in a kind, biblically sound, doctrinally sound way of helping the LGBT community to understand this thing of conscience. So I pray, dear Lord, that every man and woman, boy and girl that is here today would be back next week. And next week have a notebook and a pen and say, you know, Brother Jeff, I went back, I listened to that message on the website and I took notes and I'm here today because I want to know how to enter into dialogue with those people who have moved away from biblical doctrine and what sound and whatever sin it may be. It's not just homosexuality. It is the car thief. It is the thief who's grown comfortable and feels like socially. I can still because look how bad things are for me. May, dear Lord, we be what you've called us to be. And Lord, I pray today, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or girl, someone today who's listened to this message and been reminded of the difficult days we may face in the future. It may be one day that our children, ripped from this land like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were to the, the nation of, of Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know whether it's the Soviet Union or China. We don't know if it's the militant Islamic State. We don't know, dear Lord, our enemy anymore in, a, in this world. We are becoming more isolated and more ostracized. And many refer to us as the great Satan. We are positioning ourselves much like Israel positioned itself in the Old Testament. And God, I pray that you raise up men that would preach the gospel. Pulpits, as Alexis de Tocqueville would say, flame with righteousness. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would realize the desperate hour that we are in. But God, you would raise up men and women who filled with your Holy Spirit, whose conscience are on high alert. Let's stand and fight the fight. I'm not looking for militant. There are some people that are in this battle. They're just filled with hate. They're just filled with animosity. God, I'm not talking about being like that. I don't believe homosexuality is any more than a lot of other sins. America's got the sin of gluttony. We've got the sick, uh, sin of uh, adultery and pornography. There are a lot of sins, dear Lord, that hold us captive. But I pray, dear Lord, there are men and women that go home and clean up their house and clean up their lives and do what they need to do to, to make themselves, dear Lord, the holy vessel so that they're not only a conscience to themselves and their children and their grandchildren, but there'll be a conscience to their community. There'll be a conscience in the school. There'll be a conscience in their community, in their neighborhoods, and across this country, and across this land. 
before it's too late. May we realize the desperateness of the hour. And may God you raise us up before it is too late. As Ruth Graham said to Billy, who's between life and death, and Ruth, Ruth is in heaven. I believe she's in heaven with you, Lord. As Ruth Graham said to Billy, if God spares America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Raise up men and women in the NBA like David Robinson with the San Antonio Spurs. Raise up men in the NFL like Tim Tebow. Raise up men in the NLB and the NHL. Raise up men and women across this land that, dear Lord, in whatever industry they're in, they'll turn it back. And they'll be brave. And Lord, we'll give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.